Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys. Today's episode is sponsored by Marcy Dermansky Editorial Services. Marcy is now offering private editorial services to writers just like you. Is your manuscript in a box? Is it in the back of a drawer? Is it buried in the dark recesses of your computer? Is it uh, buried in your backyard? Writer and editor Marcy Dermansky would like to help you. She is the author of the critically acclaimed novels Bad Marie and Twins. She's won awards for her own work. And better yet, she's helped clients get their books published and win awards of their own. For more information, please visit MarcyDermansky.com. She's an editor. She can edit you. Go and hire her. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is hopefully going to motivate you to write something. This is digital content heard around the world. How are you today? I hope you're doing well. I'm Brad Listy here in Los Angeles. I'm sitting at my desk. I'm leaning slightly down and to the left. I'm in a kind of a hunched posture. <laughs> uh, anyway, I'm happy to be talking to you. A lot to cover today. A lot is happening. I have some more news. It's been a newsy couple of weeks, it feels like. Uh, first of all, there is now some new original written content over at the show's website, otherppl.com, the new website, otherppl.com. I wrote an essay. It is called Anatomy of a Social Media Psychodrama. It's about me having an awkward experience on Twitter, if you can imagine that. And uh, it involves, uh, indirectly, the authors, Curtis Sittenfeld, and uh, Elizabeth Gilbert, and it also involves Bill and Melinda Gates. And that's all that I'm going to say about it. I guess it sort of involves uh, Curtis Sittenfeld directly. It, you just have to read it. It's mostly about me. <laughs> uh, in addition, you can read new stuff from Mira Gonzalez and Spencer Madsen, the site's other two contributors. Mira is writing about uh, body dysmorphia her struggles with food and uh, drugs and how she sees and experiences her physical self. It's uh, pretty comprehensive and uninhibited. 
as is Mira. And uh, Spencer Madsen has excavated the Notes app on his iPhone. The Notes app is where he uh, like writes down his random thoughts on the subway. Ideas, overheard conversation, and so on and so forth uh, that he you know later uses in his creative writing work. So Spencer has gone through his old notes in exhaustive fashion, and he is now sharing some of his better findings with the general public. So if you want to read that stuff, go check it out. It's there at otherppl.com. Also, uh, I have some other news, very exciting news. It's about an upcoming event. Uh, On Thursday, April 10th, just a couple of weeks from now, there's going to be an off-site event to help kick off the LA Times uh, Festival of Books weekend right here in Los Angeles. The Nervous Breakdown, my online literary community, is sponsoring the event in conjunction with The Rumpus and uh, Hot Dish, a great local reading series here in town. There will be readings by XTX, Gina Frangello, Dana Johnson, and uh, Jerry Stahl. And there will be stand-up comedy by the comedian Ted Travelstead. And uh, the aforementioned Mira Gonzalez will be making her debut as a DJ. (laughs) Her stage name is DJ Mira Gonzalez. So clearly she put a lot of thought into it. Uh, Once again, the event is on Thursday, April 10th. Showtime is 8 p.m. The event uh, is called officially Nerdy, Wordy, and Dirty. How do you like that? So April 10th, 8 o'clock in the evening, Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. The Bootleg Theater is located at 2220 Beverly Boulevard. It's 7 bucks. Uh, You can get tickets at the door or you can get them online at the Bootleg Theater website. So if you're going to be in L.A. on April 10th or if you're coming out for the Festival of Books, I hope you're going to join us over at the Bootleg Theater. It'll be a fun night. Okay. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns Depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest today is D. Foy. He's got a new novel out, his debut novel, which is now available from $2 Radio. It's called Made to Break. And it is generating buzz. Very pleased to have him here on the show. Uh, what does D stand for? You're about to find out. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen. This is D. Foy. And his new novel, once again, is called Made to Break. I am at Jeff Jackson's home in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm sitting in their uh, their very cool guest bedroom at uh, 
Jeff's wife's desk uh, that she has very generously vacated for me. And uh, I'm looking out the window at a patch of grass and a, uh, a, a wooden fence that's about, whatever, eight feet high. And um, there's another um, white clapboard house on the other side with a big pin oak in the, the yard and some shrubs. The whole neighborhood is filled with apparently what uh, Jeff has told me are uh, pin oaks, and they're ginormous, actually. They're, you know, the, the trunks of them are, uh, I don't know, they're probably, I could wrap my arms four times around them to get around some of them. Oh, my God. Well, and I should yeah. say, too, that I should say, too, that this is uh, probably the second interview that has been conducted by phone, at least, from uh, Jeff Jackson's residence. I talked to him for the podcast a while back. Yeah, he told me about that, and um, so uh, it's really interesting, Charlotte, uh, well, it's, I don't know, interesting. It's interesting for me because I have been on a huge tour, and um, this is, let's see, I'm about a month into it right now. I started with uh, AWP in Seattle and have been rolling nonstop ever since, and this is the longest I have stayed in one place at one time since then for about a month. And so it's really kind of a haven for me right now. And I actually have got some rest the last two days, believe it or not. It's hard. You know, I used to be a lot more easygoing about this, but it's hard to sleep when you travel. I'm getting, I like, I don't ever want to lose that because I like being uh, a traveler and I like, you know, flying by the seat of my pants or whatever. But whenever I go on a trip, I notice that I get, I'm getting like, older or something <laughs> yeah i'm getting older too and i've never slept well uh to begin with so uh yeah, me neither it, this this bedroom is re this house has really good mojo i'm sensitive to spaces and uh, i could tell you a story about uh my at least mild psychic abilities which could be another conversation but um like we were in uh, i went with uh carrie luna and i i don't know if you've had a conversation with her but i she did and i, I did, did. Okay, cool. So she and I did a five-city mini-tour after one of the cities was Seattle, and then directly after that, we went to Bellingham, Washington, and the hotel that we stayed in there, I got in the bedroom, and uh, I woke up about six or seven times that night in the room, and then when I got up in the morning, I felt like I was covered with slime. <laughs> For real? Yeah, I just felt like I just, I felt like I had a, like, it felt like a psychic layer of slime i was just i was really discombobulated and uh and you know i don't i don't believe in ghosts per se what i what i think other people call ghosts i call moribund energy you know things move to uh to their peak existence and then they decline into entropy and i think that i, I can i call it the, like the you know um, moribund energy in a room and i'm really sensitive to it so whatever's happened in the past that sort of thing. I think it, I really do believe that that stuff lingers, good stuff and bad stuff. So at Jeff's house, there's some serious positive energy, and um, and it's been really comforting. You know, it feels like I feel like I'm in a haven. Jesus, now I'm all worried about the energy in my in my apartment. I feel because I feel like the space, like I'm sort of sensitive to that too. And yeah. uh, like you know, the ceilings are too low in this joint, and it's too new. There's something about it. I don't like it. You know, I don't like the space that I live in, and I, we want to move, but it's like. And eventually we will, but it's like I think the next place I move to, I'm going to be a lot more careful about uh, how I feel when I walk in. Well, I think that yeah, I think that um, people don't trust their intuition enough. Often, you know, uh, that that those kinds of feelings, the the, feel, the the sense that we get when we walk into a space, uh, tells us a lot about things. I think people just in general don't use their intuition at their at their fullest. 
Um, but I'm, I've always been like that. My wife and I stayed in a place in, um, in uh, Ireland, and uh, the same thing happened where it was just both of us couldn't sleep there. And by the time the next morning came around, we were like, that, is, that room is terrible. You know, um, Bluebeard had come in there and, um, and asked about, you know, 12 women, and, uh, and we need to leave this town right away. <laughs> Did you leave? I mean, are you the kind of person who will change your plans based on something like this? No, no. I'm, I, like I said, I don't believe in ghosts. We just got out of there and got in our car and went, went about our business. But it, we were both uh, definitively creeped out. Okay, but that's what I mean. Like, you left. Like, you didn't stay another night. No, we didn't. Okay. We weren't intending to stay there on another night. We were on, a, on the road, but we were just like, we w- would like to get out of here as fast as possible. Yeah. <laughs> I went to a... I've been she, to a I've she been... believes in ghosts, actually. Um, she does believe in ghosts, and she uh, stayed in a place in... Um, uh, where in Pennsylvania, she's a choreographer, and she traveled quite a bit. And um, there's this house uh, that she stayed in a couple of years, and she is convinced that it, it is uh, haunted. And then she has since talked with a number of other people who have said the same thing. So uh, has she seen yeah. go- has she seen ghosts? Yeah, you know, I think that I don't think that she has. I don't think that she has ever seen them where you where you like wake up and at you know 3 a.m. or whatever time it is in the middle of the night and you see a guy sitting in a rocking chair in the corner. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I don't think she's gone that down that road. Yeah, I wonder about that stuff. I mean, until I see, until I physically see that, you know, see something, yeah. it's, it's hard for me to kind of believe in it. But I think there's a lot more than meets the eye. Yeah, definitely. And so, so uh, what, what about your? And speaking of a lot more than meets the eye, you alluded to this earlier. What about your psychic uh, abilities? Well, um, okay. I guess I'll tell you the story because this is a good story, and and uh, and we're we're about um, getting into stuff that people don't usually get into is like I have uh, I had a pit bull that was my best friend and what I consider her to be I she was my guardian angel and uh, she was I got her when she was five weeks old she was the first pick of the litter of of 13 pups and I went out and um, saw her the whole way I came about going to get her was really interesting and um, uh, um, serendipitous I guess uh, but but I got her and immediately I was in love with her and and um, and had her for a long time. It was 14 years and she uh, was doing just fine. And I had just met my wife. This is seven years ago, or say uh, six and a half years ago. And we took our first vacation. We went up to Vermont, and a buddy of mine uh, watched my dog. Her name was Penelope. And uh, Janine and I were gone for about three or four days. We were driving down the road. And I felt as though I had been hit in the chest with a sledgehammer, like a physical sensation. I felt like I was hit in the chest with a sledgehammer. And I kept driving, and I, I said, I, said uh, I feel like, you know, uh, Penelope's going to die. And uh, she said, what? I said, she's going to die. She's, and, I, and the next thing you know, I started bawling. I started sobbing, and I, it was so bad I had to pull over on the side of the road. And I said, uh, she's dying right now. I said, we have to go home. And... Uh, so Janine, of course, said, are you sure? And I said, I, I got to go home right now. And we drove home. And I went over to where, uh, to my friend's house who was taking care of Penelope, and I got her, and she was looking at me, and she seemed fine. And I, uh, I uh, took her home, and I was just like, she was acting strange, and we were hanging out. And um, that night, we went to sleep, and I heard her, I heard a big thump 
in the other room, and I came in, and Penelope was collapsed, and her legs were splayed out, both like like a like a person doing a splits in a position you never see a dog, and she was lying in a puddle of like this bile that she had coughed up, and I said immediately I knew I said she's poisoned, and I picked, we called a car, and you know I live in Brooklyn, and a car took us to an emergency vet in the middle of the night, and it ran in with carrying her. And I said to the doctor, she's poisoned. And uh, he said, we don't know anything right now. We'll be back in a second and tell you. We'll we'll let you know. He came out some minutes later and said, uh, uh, Penelope has been poisoned. She looks as though she's eaten a penny that was um, <clears throat> that was made before after 1984. And they're loaded with zinc so much so that they can kill an animal. And like like in this case, and she's having a heart attack right now, and uh, she's in serious serious trouble. And I said, well. What what can happen? I mean, what are the chances that we bring her back? He said, well, we'd have to get the penny out of her immediately, and we'd have to deal with the heart attack, and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, <clears throat> I had to put her down right there and then on the spot. And, oh. um, yeah, and it was it was extremely, extremely brutal. And, uh, you know, um, so there, so she died. My and, God. This is like, and, and this is like 24, 36 hours after you had had this feeling. And I should say, too, that your wife is pretty understanding uh, to be in the middle of a vacation and to go, like, to ditch the vacation on this, like. Yeah. 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 She was, well, she knew that I was, she knew that I was very serious. And she, and I'm a pretty sensitive guy. Uh, but yeah, she is. She was, she was amazingly supportive. But yeah, it was, it was, it, it, no, Brad, it was nine hours later she died. My you know, God. it was a five-hour, six-hour drive, maybe maybe twelve hours. Yeah. Okay. She waited. She, she called out to me and told me that she would dine and waited for me to come home, and uh, so that I would be there when she died. That's that. I'm convinced of that. Yeah. I, I, so I, I, I do I have. So I have some psychic powers. <laughs> I think we all do. I think we all do. I just don't think all of us have like our, you know are in touch with our antennas. You know, I think that there is. Levels of intelligence that, like, again, we're more than meets the eye, you know, and some people have stronger antennas than others or are aware that they have one or something. But, um, yeah, I've had similar, I mean, not similar experiences where I knew that a pet was going to die, but like I had similar, you know, a couple of experiences that you can't explain away. I've talked about them on the, I think on this show before, so I won't go into like the full story, but, um, I'm curious if you've had, uh, like, is this something that's common for you or does it only come sometimes? Or is this the only one that you can really point to that was this explicit? Uh, well, frequently, and I think other people experience this, I know when a person's going to call me and, uh, or write me or appear at some place and I'll, I'll say, I'll say to other, someone else that like the phone will ring and I'll say who the person is. And sure enough, it is that person, someone I haven't talked with for three months or did you know uh, that did you know that i was going to call you today is that <laughs> i knew that you were going to call me at 401 precisely <laughs> when it rang i said that would be brad Liffey. <laughs> um but i mean you've never had something where you you know you've like predicted a, a somebody's demise or oh no 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 i don't uh, it, it's nothing like that no and, and i just if, and I, you couldn't do like a reading for somebody like no okay. I, well you know i've never got into that i don't know that i couldn't but I, but I believe probably I think that if I were to get into that uh, tarot or, or uh, reading tea leaves or entrails, even you know, <laughs> that that I would uh, that I might be good at it. But then again, you know, uh, I'm pretty terrible at some things too, and um, I'd have to see first. Yeah, yeah. No, I think I'm kind of similar. You know, I, I don't know what it is. You just can't explain them away. And uh, that's no. a fact. Yeah, you a, can't explain it. Yeah. That's an intense story, man. That's super intense. It's an intense story, right? You know, and in fact, it's really interesting. I, I told uh, Carrie Luna this same story while we were driving um, 
to that creepy hotel. And as a matter of fact, we had left Seattle. We were driving in the car, and I told her that. And I started crying when I was telling the story because it's really, really powerful to me. And she was, uh, since she's gone away, you know, I, then I, uh, I had met my wife just a couple months before. We've been together about seven years now. And uh, she travels a lot. And then I, at that point, started traveling a lot and started doing – my whole life really changed at the, when I met uh, Janine in, a, in very different ways. So um, I think that it was – like. You know, I'm the type of person that doesn't believe in coincidences. I think all things are as they are because all things are as they should be. And uh, that that was supposed to happen when it happened. And she, uh, I had gone through a very rough spate um, in the years preceding that. And um, and Penelope knew that I had got to a place where everything was good and, and that I, not that I didn't need her anymore, but that I was fine without her. Yeah, it's so interesting that yeah. you say that because I had a dog that was really special to me. Uh, I got him when I was like 19, 20, mm. and uh, I hiked the Appalachian Trail with him. He was a border collie. Wow. And I had him all throughout my 20s, and uh, I, the, the way I met my wife, he was starting to get sick. He died of cancer, and he was starting to get sick right when I was meeting my wife. And like one of the first things <laughs> – he was like incontinent, and like one of the first things I would do – uh, or one of the first interactions I had with my uh, wife was that I would drop him off because she's a dog lover. And for some reason, I trusted her. I was like, will you watch him while I'm you know, away at work teaching? And uh, I would drop off this like dog, this incontinent collie. <laughs> and she would watch <laughs> him. Your new girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, right. Just like, you know, she would just like walk him around the neighborhood the entire time because like he couldn't be inside. And like, I didn't know quite what was going on with him at that point. But uh -huh. um, he died the day before my first book reading. Um, so it was like this, it was like a similar thing like he saw me through my twenties, like all of the struggles that I had, you know, trying to write this novel, um, you know, whatever it was. And then I'm yeah, trying to do your thing. Yeah. And, and I finally, I meet my wife and then my book gets published and like the day before it launches, he dies. <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's kind of, I mean, that's very parallel to my story, right. not, not in terms of the book, but in terms of just a transformation where you're moving from one phase in life to another. And, um, and you have this guardian. I mean, I really think of, I, you know, I really think that not just dogs, but animals in general are, um, we don't obviously, obviously we don't give them the due that they, they deserve. They're much more intelligent. The kinds of intelligence that they have is not intelligence that we value. And, you know, they're, they take care of us as much as we take care of them. That's right. That's right. And I, it's good to hear you say that. I feel like that doesn't get said often enough is that like, I really bristle whenever uh, human beings, like either collectively or individually, sort of like pat themselves on the back and consider themselves as special or something, it's like as a species. Uh, yeah. I don't feel that way at all. <laughs> well, it's totally ludicrous. Yeah. Like, like, the idea is like that we are an animal the same as any other animal. We happen to have a, a different kind of consciousness, and we've evolved differently so that we're aware of ourselves and of the universe in a way that other animals aren't. But uh, but that doesn't mean that there's some sort of inherent value to us, right? There's no, there's that is the idea of that makes me more than bristle. In fact, you know, um, just this morning, I looked online. I don't know if you saw it. I don't know who's in your network on Facebook. Someone put up a picture of this woman sitting on top of a, the corpse of a giraffe that she had just shot. Oh, God. And uh, it was it was gnarly. Like this giant a giraffe. It was a, a big male giraffe. She went out and hunted it and killed it. Yeah. So see, she could get its head. That kind of a giraffe. Stuff. Yeah, that kind of stuff. It's just that's man. And like you know, like we should also say, if we're being honest, that like what species is more dysfunctional? Like I, I don't even know if that, 
Yeah. I mean, the only really. the only species, the only other animal species that like you know exhibit anything close to the kind of like emotional or psychological dysfunction that human you know the human beings do are the animals that actually come into contact with us, <laughs> you know, on a regular basis. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that we actually that we actually. Uh, that we actually control. Right. So it, it's yeah. no wonder, right? Yeah. The ones, the ones that don't have anything to do with us are fine, you know. <laughs> so, I hadn't thought of it that way, but that is very true. Yeah, yeah. So I want to ask you, uh, before I forget, just because this is such an obvious question, but your name, I'm sure you get this question all the time, D. Uh, yeah. What does, the D uh, st- what does the D stand for, or does it stand for anything? It doesn't stand for anything in terms of the purposes of this conversation. Uh, <laughs> it, um, it, it, you know, I'll tell you this: there are a lot of um, names in my family, and uh, it goes back to it. My my whole father's side of the family um, comes from Texas, and uh, so there are a lot of strange names and a lot of nicknames and different uh, original names and then other names that actually become their name and the, the, the actually given name is never used or referred to even, uh, uh, save for extreme legal purposes. So my father's great, my great grandfather, he was born in the middle of a cotton field somewhere outside of Lubbock, uh, in a town, um, outside of a little tiny town called, uh, La Mesa, Texas. And, uh, they didn't have doctors, right, obviously, so they bring in two ladies. One lady was named Mrs. Owen, and one lady's name was Mrs. Looney, and they gave, uh, they gave successful birth to him, and, and um, his parents decided to name him in honor of the two women that um, made his life possible, Owen Looney. That was his first name, Owen Looney, and he hated that name, so they called his, his whole life, he got called O.L. His name is O.L. Harp, and it's O.L.Harp. And uh, so he, you know, he he grows up and he has a kid. And what does he name his kid? Uh, his kid's name is on the birth certificate is O dot L dot. That's his first name, O L. Not there's nothing else other than that. Um, but do they call him O L? No, they don't call him O L. They call him Bud. <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, the, then my father was born, and his name is um, Burl Harp. That's his first and middle name. And when he was born, the uh, doctor, the, the nurse said, he looks like a little butch. And a second she said that, from then on, his name is Butch. And he's never, he's never been called Burl in, ever since I've known him, or, and no one else has ever called him that. So, and then um, Foy is his father's name, his father's uh, middle name, and he went by that and some other different names. So that's where I get that name. And it's actually of Gaelic um, origin from what i have been told at least i haven't ever researched it okay but, so wait, is it a, is it a pseudonym is defoy a pseudonym yeah, yeah defoy i mean it, it uh, uh practically speaking it's a pseudonym yes so like on your like on your driver's license it's a different name it is a different name on my driver's license and can you share that or not no that's why i'm saying i would i would rather not go into that right 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 yeah you yes. you're defoy the author i mean you know that's the yes pro- i'm defoy the i'm defoy the author yes for my pri- my public life okay for what it's worth <laughs> And so, and and so, are, are were you raised in Texas? Where are you from? No, I um I was born in the Mojave Desert, and uh, where my dad was raised. And then six months after that, we uh, my dad and mom moved to the Bay Area. And uh, when I was about ten years old, we got into Oakland, and that's where I consider my hometown is Oakland, California. And I lived there uh, until um, about ten years ago. So all my life. I lived in Oakland and the so, Bay Area. I lived in San Francisco, 
Berkeley. Those were my stomping grounds. Okay, Oakland. I feel like Oakland sort of got a rougher edge to it than San Francisco. It's got a rougher. It's got a real rough edge to it. And the, the thing about it is that it, since every there was the first uh, dot com bubble that was happening in the nineties. And when the rents in San Francisco started going through the ceiling, then a lot of people decided that they were going to come across the bridge to Oakland, and they did, and they started um, sussing out a lot of the the more desirable aspects of it. But Oakland is the one part of it, the the western part of it, uh, the flatland. It's like it runs next to the bay, and then it goes east and goes up into the Berkeley Hills. So there are there are the flatlands, and, of course, that's where the poor people live. And then the farther you go up the hill, the richer it gets. And uh, so there's a huge, huge it's, al- it's always the way that it works. You know, why does it's it? It's always the way that it works. It's the other side of the tracks, or it's, uh, it's up the hill. Up and the, the hill. You know, the, yeah, it's up the hill. And uh, so it, it, where I, I, for example, um, was where our house was, literally it was the dividing line between that. There was a road that went up to the hill, and it was called 35th Avenue. And then there was a street that we lived on. It was called Jordan Road. And at Jordan Road, at that crossroads, the name of the street turned to Redwood Road. So it went from 35th Avenue to Redwood Road. And even the name changes, right, is is evident. This is happening here, and that's happening there. And uh, so we were uh, right on this this gray zone, and the junior high school that I went to was – predominantly black, had some um, Latino and some Asian, and I was one of just a very few white boys. And so that was uh, that was really interesting for me, it, and, and it was pretty rough. I mean, I, I will have to say that I had a pretty – it was pretty rough. And then when I got into high school, I got into the best high school. Somehow those were the same districts, and that was up on the top of the hill. And uh, it was a lot nicer, but it was a great uh, – uh, um, um, ethnic mix, you know, the diversity was really, really great and has given me a foundation for the rest of my life where, for example, it's very difficult for me to go into a community that's just strictly white and not be a little bit disturbed. Yeah. Well, yeah, no, <laughs> so, I feel that way. I mean, like what, and I, you know, and I grew up in the, you know, the whitest suburbs of Indiana or whatever, you know, but really, okay. But I've lived in LA for 12 or 13 years and, uh, you learn to appreciate, I mean, I, I've learned to, you know, really, uh, appreciate that i also you know i lived in colorado as well boulder's like maybe the whitest city ever you know uh, <laughs> yeah, i rolled through there i don't re- i don't recall what the whole mix of it was but it does, that doesn't surprise me <laughs> well colorado in general i mean i guess there's a strong latino population uh, i mean denver's got some diversity and it's gonna it's gonna get more and more that way but um you know boulder for sure it's gonna get that way because of, of the new marijuana laws it's gonna turn into uh amsterdam america you know right right <laughs> Yeah. So, uh, but you said junior high, you know, being one of the only white kids, uh, yeah. was rough. Like, were you getting beat up? Yeah, I got into, I got into a lot of scraps. Um, I was fortunate that I, I mean, I did get beat up sometimes, but I wasn't always the loser. So that was, you know, I had to fend for myself is what happened. Yeah. So were you, yeah. were you a big guy? Like, could you fight? You know what? I'm a I'm a really large man right now. I'm six two two oh five, scoped up to two ten. And um, but in, at the time, I was a shrimp. I was one of these guys that I was uh, when I was a junior in high school. I was still five foot eight and about a hundred and thirty five pounds. And in that year, I grew to six foot two and I was one hundred forty five pounds. So at the end of my junior year, that I was like a beanpole and uh, and extremely awkward. 
and then um, and then I since I over time I've just my bones have thickened out and I've got to be the guy that I am now and I am um, I'm large enough where I'm not comfortable with it. So for example, like in my novel, there's this the narrator of the novel is my alter ego and he's about five foot uh, five foot five you know, in my mind, and he weighs about 130 pounds, and he's extremely pretty. Every, all the things that I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, you're uncomfortable at 6'2"? You think you're too big? Well, you know what happens is, is that also it so happens that I'm covered with tattoos, uh-huh. and um, a guy who is as large as I am and who has tattoos like I do, it's hard to slip into the woodwork. You know, right. it's hard to fade into the background, and, I, and I'm uncomfortable sometimes with uh, just the attention um, that I get being really large yeah see i'm, I'm like a, i'm like a hair below six feet tall I'm like i'd give anything to be like six three i don't know why i want to be tall <laughs> you're in the you're in the limbo zone yeah i'm just in this limbo zone and i think like i yeah. come from you know i come from uh, short people or shorter people i want to be the one who breaks breaks through you know but I, well, you know what's really interesting is that my father is i think he's five ten my brother's five nine my brother's five t- my other brother's five ten and i'm six two and uh my mother has tall brothers but it's interesting that I'm this. Uh, I was I was also the black sheep in the family too. So, um, like I'm the artist, you know. I'm the guy who I went to school, all that stuff. And um, well, yeah. So what? 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 Like you? How many siblings did you have? I got two brothers. Okay, so two brothers. Were you the middle? I'm the oldest too. Oh, yeah. you're the oldest and the black sheep. Usually, the oldest is like the shining star, right? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I'm. I'm. Uh, I'm the guy who would cut off his nose to spite his face if you told me that you didn't like my if you that I couldn't cut off my nose. I'd say, "Oh yeah." Right. You know? <laughs> right. So what kind of what kind of uh like family background do you cut? Like what do your parents do? Do you come from artsy people? No, they're not artsy people at all. In fact, yeah, my my uh my dad's a regular guy. He he worked for um he worked as a buyer in a in a company um called the Cyclotron Corporation. And my mom was a housewife for a long time. She afterwards she started getting some. She started doing some jobs. She worked at a, a department store for a time, but um, that's you know that's basically it. My dad has since dropped away from what he called the executive life and um, has become a carpenter and a handyman, and uh, decided to grow his hair out about as he looks like Willie Nelson kind of. Okay, now. so I mean, does he have a little hippie in him? He's got a little. He's got a little hippie in him. Yeah, I would say. Okay. Well, that see, but yeah. that 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 could be it. The carpenter, the woodwork. Maybe he's got some sort of latent, like artistic bent that he's only now realizing later in life, or something. I think my mom did too. I mean, she did a lot of macrame, and he, my dad, like pounded brass, made brass brass jewelry and stuff. Uh, when I was a kid, they were they, they were inclined that way a lot. But there's nothing there's nothing overt, you know. Right. Like, were they readers? Uh, yeah, my dad is a reader per se he's the one who turned me on the book definitely and uh he had it yeah and music too i would say so um i think i don't really though at the same time neither one of them know where i got my artistic bent um they're you know because they don't really support me as an artist you're right there my father's you know i'm proud of your son that kind of thing and my mom um likes the fact that i write but doesn't necessarily like what i write yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's, you know what I, mean? I think it's hard for parents. I mean, unless, I mean, it's different, you know, different strokes for different folks. But I feel like a lot of times uh, it's strange for parents when their children write books, you know, especially if it's got like sexual material in it or it's got, you know, really personal stuff or some combination or there's drug use or all of the yeah. above, you know, like when you're writing really 
uh, when you're writing stuff for adults and you're being, um, you know, extremely honest or, you know, you're really pushing the edge. Like I think a lot of parents have trouble with that. Yeah, I would say that that's the case. My mom has since inclined to, like when I say since, uh, in the last whatever 15 years has uh, gone a little bit more religious than I would care for and um, doesn't like profanity, for example. Right. You know, and there's a lot of profanity in my work. So, uh, well, there's a lot of profanity in life. Come on. There's, yeah, there's a lot of profanity. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I would say that I'm a profane human. Yeah. Well, yeah, I see. And I think I, I could have arguments about this all day long. I've been arguing this since I was a kid, but context matters. You know, intent matters. Like I have a three-year-old daughter and if she uh, tells somebody to go fuck themselves, uh, I'm, I'm likely to say, don't do that because I don't want you speaking in anger and using these words. But if she stubs her toe and says, fuck, that hurt. I yeah, don't, I yeah, don't care. exactly. Exactly. And you're like, that's completely appropriate. Yeah, I don't care. They're just words. I'm that, you know, I could go on. I don't, I don't understand these arguments. I think that um, I do think that language, I mean, it's an interesting thing because I feel like the, uh, with, with regard to profanity and its uses, um, not necessarily in liter you know, in literature so much as in life, though, mm -hmm. I, though I guess the two might be tied together. Like, I think that as I get older, like I be, I'm more and more sensitive to, and maybe because I'm a parent and I think it also matters in the context of like a married relationship. Um, you, you get more and more sensitive to and attuned to the power of language yeah, uh, you know. To, yeah, I'm sure. If with if with a kid, that would be that would be hyper heightened. Yeah, it is, and and you know, and like which word choice matters, and tone matters, and making sure that you um, are conscious of what you're saying and how you're saying it, because you can hurt, you can harm people, or you can lead them the wrong down the wrong path, or you can give them the, you know some sort of false idea about themselves or something, and you know, you know, the, the whole thing about language is a really uh, fascinates me. Um, to what end, I don't know, because if you think about language, really, it's utterly meaningless. It is, they're, they're, we get, we, we um, organize our lives through language, and we communicate as groups of people, right, in a society with language, but if you think about it, it comes out, it has nothing to do with anything that's real. The, the, the sound of the words coming out of our mouth have nothing to, to do, and, the, and, the, and the, the particular organization of sounds, which are the words, right, have nothing to do with the object that they refer to, right? right? They're just symbols. So, so it, there's this huge paradox in the sense that they are the biggest, most meaningful thing that I can possibly think of, and yet at the same time, I'm acutely aware as a writer that they also have nothing to do with anything, and uh, I have grappled with that a lot as a, uh, as a as an artist, you know, and also um, as a as what I would say a spiritual person in a sense that um, you know, like I've done um, a lot of meditating and um, I've investigated, say, Buddhism quite a bit and other other different um, practices. But you know, I when I think about the nature of things, right? What is real? Because that's a fascination of mine too in my writing. What is real versus what seems to be real? Right. That sort of thing crops up a lot, and um, and then it, it, I find it very paradoxical that I'm a writer, and that that has always mattered most to me, even though I've be become very very aware uh, of the ultimate um, valuelessness of language. Um, you really? And, yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not 100 there with you. You think it's valueless? You mean it doesn't stand for no, anything? No, I, I mean it, I'm talking about in the scope of things, in yeah. the cosmic scope of things. I'm not talking about. Of course, it's that's why I'm saying is that it's. It's the, it's the most important thing uh, in my daily life. We go, you know, I'm talking to you right now on a phone, and we're 
we are uh, ha- we're having a meeting of the mind, so to speak, through our words. But uh, but but you know, go um, 10 million years or 15 billion years from now, and there are no human beings. Life is and the world and the universe will still be working the way it was 15 billion years previous. If it has been around, has the universe been around for what 14.7 billion years, something like that, is what they say. Um, but a long time, and there, you know, and and lang- things are the way they are, and language has nothing to do with the way they are. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what I mean when I say that. Sure, and and you uh, and you talked about uh, like Buddhism and meditation. Like how how central is that to your life now? And like how did you get into that? Uh, I got into that through. Um, a spirit, what I would consider to be a spiritual crisis, and uh, a, 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 an interest in finding a deeper meaning than I had at a time. And um, I started reading. Uh, I had this. I had this situation where this stranger came up to me, and she handed me this book. And uh, and at the time, I was very, very upset that she handed me this book, and because because it reflected her knowledge uh, that I was in a, a in a tight spot. And um, and I thought that no one knew that I was in a tight spot. And it was by this woman called Pema Children. You may have heard of her. Yeah. And it was called it was called When Things Fall Apart. Wait. So who <laughs> ga- who who gave it to you? Pema Children didn't give it to you. Some other. No, no. This woman. This woman gave me the book. And uh, how, how old and were was, you? How old were you? Uh, let's see. I was uh, I was thirty eight. Okay. So this. So I am forty nine right now, and uh, and going to be fifty next month. So I'm an old dude also, incidentally, or not incidentally. But uh, she gave me this book, and um, and I was upset and didn't want to look at it for a while, but then I began to uh, read it, and it began to make a lot of sense to me. And then I started doing, I started reading, I uh, read uh, Shunri Suzuki, uh, Zen Mind, Beginner Mind, and then I started reading a whole bunch of other things that are along those lines. And um and then it wasn't too long after that that I went to the monastery for a first time for a long time and um, to meditate and just uh, like to really try and um, and get a grip on um, on reality. Like this is what I when I say when I talk about that in the sense of you know what is and versus what seems to be. That I think meditation really is is an investigation into that into into looking into who we really are and and also just as importantly who we are not and uh, and I've that has been uh, ever since then it that has affected everything that I've done that my 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 investigations have uh, what I've learned along the way uh, have affected everything I've done and once you know there are certain kinds of knowledge. Once you have it, you can't not have it. Right. Certain things you know. Once you know them, you can't unknow them. Right. And uh, so I would say that that's the case in that sense. And so, uh, so who is that? So, a couple, a couple of questions. First of all, you referred to like having a spiritual crisis. Like, what do you mean by that? Uh, I got to a place in my life where I didn't. Um, uh, uh, it was meaningless. I just say that I did. I was like there. Was, I had a sense of meaninglessness, and um, but had the sense also at the same time that that wasn't the way things really are, and that that was a function of some grave misunderstanding on my part. And that's that's the reason why I started searching for other things. And I don't believe too that this is why I say I don't believe in coincidence. So this lady handed me this book. Who was this lady? Like, where, where, where were you? She was a neighbor. She was a neighbor where I was leave, living, and and I was getting ready to leave this house. 
and uh, and and she and she and I wasn't going to see her again. And then uh, she came out and gave me this book. Yeah, it was very you know it's like right in, in it doesn't seem to make sense. And that's really there isn't much more context to that. She literally came out of the house, saw that I was leaving. I said goodbye to her. She ran back into her house, got this book, came out and gave it to me and said goodbye. Wow. And was this in Oakland? No, this was in Gainesville, Florida. Oh. What were you so doing? I had gone, I had gone down there. This was right after I left. Uh, I was uh, in another relationship and had gone down there with um, with that person um, to study down there. Okay. She had gone down there to study, and I went with her. Yeah, and that's and and I was having a really hard time. So that's when that happened, and I and I came back to California. Uh, so okay, so you were leaving Gainesville. With the I was leaving Gainesville. Yeah, that could be a title. And leaving the swamps of, of Florida. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of people. Who uh, who I since met who really like Gainesville, but there are a lot of people also who don't like Gainesville, and I'm one of those people. I think that it, I would say it is the ickiest place I've ever been in the United States. <laughs> yeah, you know, I have a friend who did graduate school down there. They stuck it out. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, I didn't. I, I've never gotten like the official verdict with the benefit of like ample hindsight, but. Doesn't sound yeah. like where, it doesn't sound like where I'd want to be, but I'm not good with humidity. You know, that's my thing. Yeah, neither am I, and, and that is a real thing there. And it also has the highest concentration of lightning strikes in the continental United States. Yeah, no, that's not good either. I don't want that. Yeah, I've seen lightning strike probably whatever twenty feet away from me. Jesus. Hitting, yeah, hitting um, hitting a shrub, and I've seen them hitting bolts of lightning hitting trees down there. One one just struck into the ground. And uh, yeah, they're, it, it's it's super intense. They have big, huge tropical storms down there uh, every afternoon, and um, they'll you know a bolt of lightning will strike a big oak tree, and, and like a huge branch will fall off and crush a car. Damn. <laughs> yeah, Florida's intense, man. Florida's a crazy place. I feel like you know, I feel like it's in the news every week. There's some story out of Florida. I mean, like too. Also, if you, no one really seems to think about Florida as being the deep south. But you get the panhandle, right? It goes down, and you have Miami, which is, in my opinion, like L.A. on bad mescaline. <laughs> and then <laughs> it's, it's, it's the East Coast L.A. But if you go up to Gainesville, it is right. If you look at the United States as a rectangle, and uh, the lower right-hand corner is the deepest south you can get, that's where Gainesville is. Right. It's the deepest south that you can get, and people are very, very, very southern there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's very real. It's a real thing. Yeah, well, it's a real thing, and it's it's interesting, and we could we could have a huge other conversation about that. Okay, yeah, but you were were you in school there? Or were you just tagging along? I was just tagging along, and okay. and I was writing. No, one, know, no wonder, you know, no wonder things were falling apart. You know, just like yeah. I'm stuck. Lightning is striking all around me. You yeah, know. yeah, and I'm being attacked by alligators coming out of the uh, coming out of the sewers. Oh God. Okay, so. Um, so you read this uh, when things fall apart by Pema Chodron, and then you um, you start meditating. You still meditate? Yeah, I do. I mean, I'm, my practice isn't uh, nearly as consistent as I'd like, but it's 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 definitely a part of my life. Okay, and then you yeah, said you, even, you, you there are different forms of it too, right? I mean, there you can actually sit on a cushion and uh, do formal meditation, but really, really meditation in the in the, at least from a Zen perspective. Uh, it is um, it is a form of um, it means focusing yourself and being exactly here right now doing one thing just in this moment. So like I'm not I'm not going to be scribbling with my pen while I talk to you. I'm just going to be talking to you, or I'm just going. To, for example, in a monastery, you don't do you, for uh, 
often I've been in a couple of different monasteries. Some you don't speak at all while you eat, for example. No, I couldn't. Some do of that. them there there's a, there's an initial period where you don't speak, and then you can speak after that period. But the point of that is is that when when we eat, we just eat. I get that. It's like mindful eating or whatever. The thing for me is that. Uh, I have this thing about the sounds of mastication. It's just uh, the sa- a silent dining room with like dozens of people like chewing. I would just you know what you're the first person that I've ever met who's had a problem with that, and I have a real <laughs> problem with that. I, I think I, I can't stand someone the sound of someone smacking their gum. Yeah, it no, drives me nuts. Like no. on the subway, you get someone doing that. Yeah, yeah, that yeah. whole thing. Yeah, no, I will. I will gladly eat in mindfulness, but I'm just going to take my you know my food outside and sit under a tree. <laughs> I don't want to be in this cafeteria-like setting, just like sitting across from somebody. It's just—it's too much. It's like I get yeah, it. it, I get it. But it's too much. It is, but you know what? I think you have a different attitude. Like the the your mindset changes when you're in that uh, that context. So, what monastery did you go to? Like what so, I went to uh, uh, um, Shasta Abbey was the first one that I went to. I've okay. been to. Um, there's the one that's up in Mount Tremper in upstate New York. It's um, the Mountains and Rivers Order, and then I've been to the first. Zen monastery in North America, which is Tassajara in um, the mountains outside of Big Sur in California. No and, shit. Uh, yeah, those are the three that I've been to. That's a good spot. And it's, dude, you don't even know. It's an amazing spot. And you just go up there for like how long? You go up there for for like a retreat or something? You go up there for as long as you want. Really, I mean, you can actually, if you decide that you want to practice and um, and and be and and live with the monks. You can go there for three years if you want. You can go there for six months if you want. Once you start, once you go there, you essentially live the. You live. You are a monk for all intents and purposes. You right. live with the monks. You do what the monks do. You eat the way they eat. You work the way they work. Um, there's a very rigid schedule uh, in monastic monastic life. You wake up very early in the morning. You meditate. Uh, as soon as you're done meditating, you go to work. Uh, when you're done working, you eat a meal. When you're done eating a meal, you go back to work. When you're done working, you meditate again. You go back to work again. Then you go to sleep. It sounds and like it sounds like my life right now, except I have a three. <laughs> yeah, it's according to a very rigid schedule. The bells, you know, they can ring you, the bells, and you're done with you. St- you end this thing and you do that that thing. Okay. Can okay. So can you, uh, if you wanted to be a writer and you had some fiction work that was of interest to you, could you work on that, or do you have to like be mopping the floor of the monastery? Yeah, I don't think that they would let you do that. Actually, they might. They would probably let you do that if once you were a monk, I, because there are obviously there are. Uh, uh, his name is Roshi Lori, I guess. John Lori was um, the name of the um, of the abbot of um, 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 Mount Tremper. He passed away, I think, about two years ago. But he wrote many, many books, and also Pema Chodin writes many, many books. Uh, so there must be time for them where they get to the place where they're allowed to, they're given the time to write. But I don't, if, if I just went there and I'm some schlep off the street and said, Hey, you know, I want to find myself and could I come and, and practice with you guys? They'd say, sure. And then I'd say, but you know, by the way, I'm also a schlep off the street who's a writer and I would like to write for six hours a day and then I'll come and hang with you. They would say, well, you have to do that elsewhere. Yeah. See, that was, I was almost there. I was like, this is the perfect, this is the perfect way to game yeah. the system. Just go hang out at a monastery. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I thought of that. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and then do you, what about your accommodations? Are you sharing a room or do you get your own little, like, no, uh, you don't get your own room. You sleep with, uh, you sleep in a, it's like a dormitory. Um, you sleep in a room with other people. They're, they're different at different places, uh, you know, but that's generally the way it is. And it's very rustic. Yeah. Too. Very right. Spartan. That's you right. know, it's, it's very Spartan. Everything gets stripped down to uh, to the basics. 
Right. Which is the point. Exactly. I was going to say that sounds appropriate. Yeah, it is. Uh, okay. So what about this writing thing? Like, how did you get into, I mean, you're 49, you're publishing this novel. Um, yeah. what was the road like? I assume it was, you know, it had its turns. So, um, I wanted to be a rock star when I was a kid and, um, I, uh, started playing music as, as soon as I got out of high school, I started playing music, um, really intently and got into a band and, um, just immediately immersed myself in this whole I, the, the the lifestyle uh, of a rock star. So I like I like to say that I was a rock without the star because I did all the things that rock stars <laughs> do without the fame, <laughs> and lived a really crazy uh, intense life and um, played a lot of music. And then so when I was doing that, I started writing songs and I was writing the music, and then I started writing the lyrics to the music and uh, and really got into the the compositional side of um of music and um and then i uh i don't know how i had always read books and i was really into books and um but i had never read poetry and i don't know why but i got the idea that i was going to write some poems and then started doing that but of course uh poets who have um who write poetry but have never read poetry usually write really bad poetry and i was that um i was not an exception <laughs> so so i wrote some really bad poems and then i i don't know what happened was i like to tell stories as you could tell like you know like like telling you the story about penelope and i do that all the time that sort of thing and i i wrote a story and just it was terrible but i the the sense of pleasure that i got from it and the um the kind of the 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 power that I got from it, like I can come into a room by myself and I can and I can create this world and it's and I'm and I have this autonomy um, that I don't have, especially for example, playing in the band where it's extremely collaborative and interdependent and you rely right. for all sorts of stuff, not just the playing of the music on other people, and um, who frequently are fuck ups and. Um, and I really didn't like that aspect of it. And I didn't really also like at the time the performative side of playing music. I really liked making music, composing music, and then practicing it with my bandmates. But I didn't like getting up on a stage. I was terribly frightened. Back okay, then. yeah. So you're sounding more and more like a writer. <laughs> so, yeah. So, but the thing is, it's not the case anymore, though. Uh, I'm 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 pretty comfortable in front of an audience now. I don't know how that happened. Um, but that's true. But but then, so that was the case then. And then all of a sudden, I just decided that I was going to be a writer. And one day, I literally, I quit playing music cold turkey, and I sold all my stuff. I literally had guitars and basses and amplifiers and recording gear and special effects and all this stuff, and I sold it all, every single, every single, to the last, to the guitar, to the last guitar string and pick. No shit. And, uh, yeah, I did. And, um, and I just decided that I was going to be a writer. And, um, again, I don't know where I got the idea that that's the case, but I, but I did. And, um, then I realized that because I almost flunked out of high school and, and in fact, I had thought that I was, I conceived of myself as being a moron <laughs> for that reason. And, uh, and, um, and I decided that if I, I knew that if I were going to be a writer that I had to read a lot more, but I didn't know exactly what to read and knew though, however, that. I could go to college and they would tell me what to read. So I got into a JC and um, took these remedial classes to get my um, to get back in line, and then started taking um, English courses. And uh, I decided that I was going to get into UC Berkeley, and I did get into UC Berkeley, and I went there. And um, by then, I was writing like on a regular basis. How old were you then? And, 
let's see, uh, I was in my, like, my, I think it might have been, let's see, I've been writing for 23 years, so what does that mean, 27? Okay, and so, and, yeah. and what kind of music were you playing in this band, or with these bands? I was playing, like, uh, it was very power pop, 80s power pop, so like a cross between the Replacements and the Pixies and Led Zeppelin and U2 and maybe the Stooges. What, and what, yeah, was, the name, what was the name of your bands, anything we would know, or like the... Uh, I don't think so. We had a we had a recording that got played in the Bay Area on a lot of college radio stations and this other bigger radio station. Um, but we were called Driver Red, Driver Red, okay. very eighties name, very REM ish name. I right? was going to say, yeah, Driver Aid is what I was just like like sprung into my mind. But yeah, so uh, uh, it was inspired by that. Uh, no, you know, no wonder there, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, so yeah, so then I so I went to school and I began, and I and you know and I started and I kept writing. And then um, I've written a bunch of books. I uh, made to break that the book that's out right now with Two Dollar Radio is uh, I wrote that book in 1998, the first draft of it, and uh, so that makes it 16 years old, right? And um, uh, so wait, you wrote it? You wrote it 16 years ago, and it took this long to get it published. Like, how many subsequent drafts were there? Or did you like put it away and then come back to it? all those years yeah later. you know it's interesting because people have been asking me this question that's the first thing wait, wait a second 16 years and yeah i so um i'm lucky in the sense that i've uh, created a pretty disciplined um practice in my writing and uh meaning that when i when i do a project and i complete it or get whatever it is that i go to whenever it reaches its end point i go to another project and so i've been i just keep writing but uh, you know, you know that feeling, Brad. When you're you get done with a, a big project, this, it's not the same if you write a story because there's not the same investment in it. But you get done with a novel, and you feel as though everything is gone from you. That you're emptied out. That you're like there's a sense of it's that kind of I. The only way I could describe it or equate it to anything is to say that post-coital melancholy feeling, where it's a sadness <laughs> and a and a kind of a depression, and um, and I get this sense of worthlessness, right, and a sense of the, also kind of a, a despair that I'll never be able to do anything again. And uh, so I had this book that was in a drawer, and I would get and I would get this book out in those periods when I was between pro- projects and looking to keep myself afloat, and I'd go in and hack out parts of it. And um, like that, and then I started another project. I'd get my my wits back again and put the book in a drawer, and uh, that happened for a while. It was about 375 pages in its original draft, and it's down close to uh, 200 right now. And uh, and then what happened was I read uh, a book by Grace Krolonovich. You probably have heard of it, The Orange Eats Creeps. Yeah. And uh, so I read that book, and. Uh, it was two dollar radio, and I said, "Hey, if uh, these guys are publishing this stuff, they might like Made to Break," and that's when I sent the manuscript to them. And uh, my hunch was right; it took about fifteen months, maybe even a little bit longer for them to acquire it, but uh, they did. And then that's when I really realized that I was going to have to get into the book and do something with it because I, in the over sixteen years, I'd become a, a you know, I wouldn't say a different writer, but a better writer. And I wanted to make I wanted the book to actually be as good, at least to my mind, as the stuff that I am producing lately. So that's that's what happened. Okay. And so, did you uh, did you have an agent, or did you just, you just submitted directly to Two Dollar Radio? I have an agent now that I've got since then. Um, I, an agent came to me because there I the, the the book has gotten some attention, and um, and I'm really happy for that. And uh, 
there was something about it out there, and, and an agent saw it, and he came to me, and, um, and I was talking to some other people, too. Anyhow, I got an agent, but at the time, I didn't have one. Okay, and so I want to ask you, too, I was reading about you online, and uh, this thing with uh, Yelp and this uh, Taylor. <laughs> oh, my goodness. What a fiasco that I, was. But I think this is a very funny story and a, and a compelling story because it's very contemporary. It's like this is the well, kind of... Yeah, that was the that was the reason why I wrote it. I mean, that's what happened, and that's the reason why I wrote that essay in Salon, uh, is because just exactly that reason. It was very funny, and it was very compelling, and it was very contemporary. And um, we'll tell people. Let, let's give people an understanding of what we're talking about. So, uh, okay, so I was going to get married last. Uh, we, I got married last September, and um, congratulations. Springtime, thank you. And uh, in the springtime, I started thinking about what suit I was going to wear. And I had, uh, now I'm not going to talk about this particular tailor, except for in the generic terms, that I found him online, and he's out there, whatever, in, through, these, through the comment sections, people have found out who it is and all that stuff, and that was just as ridiculous. Uh, but anyhow, I went to this guy, to this website, and saw this, this tailor, and they made what looked to me to be beautiful suits. And I had never had a bespoke suit, and I thought that it would be a really great thing to get one, and uh, found out that the price for them was within the range that... Uh, uh, Janine and I could afford, and so um, uh, I and it said things like um, we have 24/7 white glove service, and um, you know we do everything we possibly can to make you happy. We send our tailors to your home, et cetera, et cetera. And it just sounded like like this amazing service. So um, I called. They had the phone number, and I called this guy on the phone, and um, and uh, left a message in a very exuberant, um, you know, uh, like I really want to get a suit made by you. And um, heard nothing. And then time passed. I called again and did the same thing and heard nothing. And then I wrote an email, and um, the, the guy finally wrote me back and did some, set something up. And then uh, more time passed. And uh, after a while, I think it was about something like a month and a half or two months had passed, and I hadn't heard from this guy. And I wrote him back, and he was very dismissive of me. And... Um, so I went, okay, well, this is nothing at all like this, like the, the service. Um, this, is, this service is nothing at all like what has been described on their website. Wait, so why, why, go, was, why was he dismissive, dismissive of you? You're trying to... I really don't know. This is the thing, is that I really, I really didn't understand why. There was, no, there was no reason for it, and this is part of the reason why I was so upset. Did you interact, and, wait, did you interact with him personally, or did this over the phone? Never. I never talked to him on the phone. Never did? an email, finally. Never talked to him. Okay. And then, so, so I went and... Um, and so then I went and decided that I was going to write a, a, a review of him on Yelp, and I did. And I, and what I did was I wrote, I said just what I said to you, and I put some, um, uh, I put um, the, uh, the exchange that I had had. I believe I did that in the Yelp review, and this has been a while now. I put the exchange on the in the review, and I didn't say that they made crappy suits. I said that I never got a suit. I said that I never could even get to this guy, uh, that I was just ignored. And um, and I and I said this has nothing to do with what they they w the way they tout themselves is not the way they present themselves, and um, so what had happened was in my email exchange with this guy I had a signature that had um, uh, my my website and um, my Amazon page for my book and some other stuff and it's, this guy takes months you know all this time to respond to me and he was very remote 
And uh, it seemed like within 15 seconds of my posting that review, an email comes into my inbox and says, uh, we have just been made aware that you have posted a terrible review of our business. And I just wanted to let you know that um, we relish the moment that we can respond in kind and go on to Amazon, uh, your page on Amazon and uh, fill it with scathing reviews. For, for your book. <laughs> yeah. Damn. And, uh, and that made my blood boil. <laughs> and I was really, really, really upset because I'd been waiting all this time to get my book published. And this guy starts threatening me. He's, essentially, he blackmailed me. Yeah. Right? Uh, so I, at that point, um, there was an, a, a, another exchange of emails. And um, then what I did was I, I, post, I made a post on Facebook that said, this is a very strange thing I've just experienced, and I don't know what to do with this. And it turns out that Ron Charles from the Washington Post was in my group of friends, and he responded. He saw the post, responded to it. He got a hold of me and wanted to do something where he uh, he wanted to write about it. He next thing you know, he wrote something. He wrote an article about me in the Washington Post. Right. And then it kind of went semi-viral. It went around. A lot of people found out about it. And what happened was is that oh, meantime. I talked with a number of my friends, people that I consider to be wise and um, very trusted, and uh, they, it was pretty unanimous that, you know what, it's not worth it to, um, like, to deal with this guy. You don't want to, you don't, this is a battle that you don't really want to um, fight right now. It's, it's not worth your time. It's not worth your energy. Just take the review down, and, um, and, and then you'll be over this. This will just be a chapter behind you. So I went and took the review down, and um, but I and I told Ron Charles that he put that in the article, and all of a sudden, all these people in the comment section started going ballistic, calling me a coward and spineless, <laughs> and and you know I was being insulted across the board, and um, so uh, I it got very weird for me, like to suddenly see myself as an abstraction out in the world. My picture was in the paper and the cover of my book, and these people talking about me in ways that I just that I couldn't understand. And then it struck me, just like you said, how, how weird and contemporary and unusual this is. And I thought, you know what? This makes a really interesting essay. I was going to say, and, it's almost uh, like a, you could almost do like a short story or something. You know, like there's, yeah, there's yeah. possibilities here because you can uh, defame people online. And then like to get into like retaliatory defaming. And, and I should say too, like defame might be too strong of a word for what you did. All you did was issue, I think, a very justifiable complaint. You know, like you're, yes, that's what I did. Yeah, that's what I did. And so then this, but like the retaliate, you know, the retaliation and the back and forth and, you know, that's the internet. Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, all the flaming and trolling and all this stuff. So, uh, so, so then I pitched this idea to a number of places. Uh, Salon was one of them and they took it and then I wrote the essay and then that was that. And there was a huge response to the Salon essay too. It, it was, it was, to me, it was extremely bizarre. It's still extremely bizarre. And um, I also I learned a lot of really good lessons out of that. And one of the lessons, um, as a matter of fact, is that I probably won't. A lot of people make a living as writers, writing about that 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 kind of thing in their lives. And I realized that I'm not really comfortable with exposing myself to that extent. And what do you mean? Level, what do you mean? Well, it, it was very personal. It got very very personal, and um, and it also seemed to me ultimately to be pretty trivial. And that was part of what I wrote about in the essay in Salon, and um, and I just I just realized that that is not something that I feel um, I'm not interested in, in bringing my attention to bear on that sort of thing. 
You mean like just I like think. personal conflicts and scandals and blah 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 or whatever? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't think that I would write. I don't think that you know some people take like the, the little the, into the like the the quotidian aspects of their life and use them for um, platforms to speak. I don't know. And, what you, I don't know what you're talking about. I have no idea what you're talking. <laughs> well, you know, you know, like like things that happen in no, our no, lives. I, I, like, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm talking. I'm referring. <laughs> Referring to the, the the podcast monologues, you, you got me. You got me, Brad. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that was that. Yeah, that was the story. Wow, that's fascinating. And did you ever get? Yeah, a, was, did you ever get a, a suit? Oh, so then I did get an amazing suit at a place called, and I'll tell you where I got it. It was called Epaulette, and it was on Smith Street in um, in Carroll Gardens in Brooklyn. They also have one in uh, the Lower East Side in uh, New York City. And the people there were incredibly helpful. It was just, it was, it was great, and um, and the suit was beautiful. Did you did you write a Yelp review? <laughs> no, I didn't write a Yelp review. Well, Actually, on. I decided that I wasn't going to participate <laughs> in that anymore. Also, <laughs> yeah, yes, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, that's fascinating. And now you have this book out. It sounds like you're a busy, disciplined guy. So you're writing the next thing as this one is making its way out into the world. Uh, I suppose when you can steal away from your tour or whatever. Um, are you, yeah, the are tour. You, I'm on tour right now, and I'm exhausted, and I haven't had a chance really to write. I'm doing. I'm blogging for Electric Literature right now, and um, and uh, I think it's coming out once a week. And then also, I've been doing a lot of written interviews, which are you can't phone those in. They're no, they're right, hard. They're yeah. like writing. They're like writing mini essays, and so I I wrote a number of those, and and there's a, a whole bunch of other stuff that's been happening, and I've been. Um, Pretty and also doing the work that I do, I do a lot of grant writing, and I've been doing that also while I've been traveling, and I've been overwhelmed. Yeah, Jesus. Well, I appreciate you taking the time to to talk with me for an hour. It's been really fun. I congratulate you on uh, on the book, and I wish you luck on the on the rest of your tour. Wow, thanks a lot, Brad, for having me. I appreciate it. All right, you guys, that's D. Foy. Go get his novel. It's called Made to Break. It's available now from Two Dollar Radio. You can find D online at D. Foible. Dot com. Defoible.com. That's a pun. Get it? Foible? You can follow uh, D on Twitter at Defoible, and he's also on the Facebook. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the good music. Be sure to check out KillRockstars.com. And uh, specific thanks to the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Be sure to check out Stereo Total. And hey, don't forget about the app, the free official Other People app. It's the best way to listen to this show and to access the full archives. Uh, you know that you get the most recent 50 episodes for free. But if you would like to hear the other 200 and some odd episodes, including conversations with Jonathan Lethem, Tom Parada, Susan Orlean, Cheryl Strayed, Roxanne Gay, XTX, Kate Zambrino, etc., go get the app. The app is free, and it's available now for your iPhone, iPad, iPod Touch, or Android device. So you get the app, and then to have access to the full archives, you can sign up for premium right there inside the app. It's only 2 bucks a month. That is it. Just $2 a month. Uh, or if you would prefer, you can pay 5 bucks for 6 full months of access or $9 for a full year. That's less than a dollar a month. So you do that, you get access to everything, every single episode. And it is a wonderful way to support this podcast. And I would appreciate it if you did that. Okay? Uh, and also, don't forget to go read the new stuff over at otherppl.com, the show's official website. Uh, read about my social media psychodrama. Read about Mira Gonzalez's uh, body dysmorphia and uh, Spencer Madsen's notes. And if you're in L.A. on April 10th, don't forget, mark it on your calendar. 
uh, the nervous breakdown, the rumpus and hot dish present nerdy, wordy, and dirty. It's going to be fun. 8 PM bootleg theater, April 10th. Everybody can come bring friends. Let's have a party. Let's let's convene. Uh, Please remember that Lawrence Durrell was found dead in a bathroom and that Machiavelli died of unidentified stomach spasms. That is it for now. Thanks again to D Foy. Go get his novel, his debut novel, help this guy launch. And thanks as well to $2 radio. And uh, thanks most of all to you, the listener for listening. I appreciate it a great deal without you. uh, This would be a pitiful exercise. I'll be back in a few days with another uh, conversation with another bookish human being. Please prepare for that. I I have no idea what your preparation might entail. I leave it up to you. uh, The individual, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just rambling. This is what I do at the end of the show. I just talk myself into a dead end and then I play the closing music. (laughs) 